This morning, I have this very simple question to ask you. Have you ever been burned? You see there are two pieces of toast. I don't know if you've ever forgotten a piece of toast in the toaster. I know for a time we had a toaster when I was growing up that never would click off. So you had to watch your toast. And if you ever got stolen away, you would come back to find, you know, alarms going off, the whole kitchen smelling like smoke, some drama, obviously, windows open, and then these two charred pieces of breakfast. They say charcoal is good for you, but I'm just not so sure about this form of charcoal. Perhaps you have been burned at one point in your experience. Maybe you were taken advantage of. Someone twisted the truth, and if we really want to be dramatic, they stabbed you in the back. In some, such an experience can lead to bitterness, let's be honest, or some feelings of resentment. Feelings that they will never trust or depend on anyone at any time ever again. It can lead to this idea that I will do things on my own from here on out. Have you ever said the words, if you want to have something done right, do it yourself. Don't depend on these people. They'll let you down. And I was the one that was stupid enough to depend on them again. No, I'm going to be a self-made man. I'm going to do it myself. Don't need any help. We have other ways to say it. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Most of you didn't have any bootstraps this morning. I think on boots are those, can you put a finger in and pull them up? I don't know. That's my best guess. That means I'm going to do it myself. I'm not going to depend on anyone. Yet we don't find, if you look through your Bibles from cover to cover, we don't really get this idea from Scripture, do we? Rather, we find quite the opposite, that we were, in fact, created for community, to help one another, to encourage one another, to love one another, and not to depend on self, but to depend on God. In fact, such an independent spirit is really an exaltation of humanism if we really want to follow the path in which it is leading. It was a typical Wednesday, April 19. 1995. On that particular morning, a 26-year-old veteran of the Gulf War drove into Oklahoma City. The time was 8.50 in the morning. Just five days earlier, he planted a getaway car just a few blocks away. The license plate was taken off, and a little note was scribbled that, that he placed on the dash. It said, not abandoned. Please do not tow. We'll move by April 23. Needs battery and cable. So with his getaway car in place and traveling now to Oklahoma City, at 8.57 a.m., a camera caught a picture of the Ryder rental truck, and at that very same time, Timothy McVeigh lit a five-minute fuse while still driving the truck. Three minutes later, and still a block away from his destination, he lit another two-minute fuse. Moments later, he parked the Ryder truck in a drop-off zone situated under the building's daycare center. McVeigh exited and locked the truck as he headed to his getaway vehicle, dropping the keys to the truck a few blocks away. And then, at 9.02 a.m., the 4,800 pounds of explosive material detonated, devastating the entire front third of the nine-story Alfred P. Murray Federal Building. Later, it was determined that 168 people were killed that morning, 19 of those being babies 
and children. In fact, I could show you pictures of firefighters with babies in their arms, but I have chosen not to. Beyond those that lost their lives, 680 were injured. Up until this point, this was the deadliest terror attack in the history of the United States, only to be outdone later by 9-11. And it is still considered the deadliest domestic terrorism in our country's history. In the ground was left a 30-foot-wide, 8-foot-deep crater. The blast, so powerful that it shattered glass in 258 nearby buildings. The explosion itself was felt as far as 55 miles away. Within just 90 minutes of the explosion, McVeigh was stopped by Oklahoma Highway Patrolman for driving without a license plate. Forensic evidence quickly linked McVeigh and basic training friend Terry Nichols to the attack along with two other accomplices. And the motive? It was expressed as simply anger at the federal government for their handling of the Randy Weaver and the Waco siege. McVeigh was eventually sentenced to death by lethal injection. Yet throughout the entire ordeal, he maintained this eerie, calm composure. Not once showing even a shred of remorse or regret. Defiant, proud, he accepted his fate as a martyr for his demented cause. When asked how he could face death which, with such stoic resolve, he stated he was unafraid. When asked why, he said he controlled his own fate. Maybe you've heard those words before. Later on, McVeigh cited this entire poem by William Ernest Henley, an avowed atheist. The poem goes something like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. That's what Invictus means, by the way, unconquerable. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeonings of chance. My head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Do you get the tenor of the poem? No one's going to be the boss of me. My soul is unconquerable. I'm in control of my own destiny. Now, granted, it has a ring of heroism, but it's counterfeit. A form of courageousness, but I would submit to you it is misdirected. Now, many in the Bible were courageous. We have a whole long list. I mean, Moses stood up to Pharaoh. The three Hebrews stood up to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel faced the lion's den. Stephen went before the Sanhedrin. We could go on and on. Jesus was before Pilate. Yes, there are many who suffered and died to self for the sake of others, but self-centered, self-exalted, courageous resolve, I submit to you is not true greatness, but rather greatness perverted. One could say and make the argument that Hitler himself was courageous, that he was great, but again, his courage and his greatness were perverted. I mean, after all, Lucifer himself stood up against God and said, my head is bloody, but it's unbowed. You may be God, but I am unafraid. I am the master of my faith. I am the captain of my soul. 
Is that true greatness and courage? Or is that rebellion, hatred, a deluded claim to self-sovereignty? Again, it has a ring of heroism, but it's counterfeit. And when we see self-supremacy for what it really is, and where it has led people down through history, we recognize it to be a delusion. The simple truth of the matter is that we not only need the Lord, but we need each other. God made us that way. And that need only intensifies when the winds of adversities blow hard against us. We just heard a testimony this morning saying how much I needed my church family and they were there for me. Praise the Lord. That is what church is about, being there for one another. We were created, I believe, for dependence, not independence. Yes, we celebrated Independence Day as a nation and and all of that, but why do we do that? Because it grants us the freedom to worship God according to the dictates of our conscience. It protects our right to be dependent, not on a man, not on big government, but dependent on God and His Word. Nobody telling us that we can't be dependent on God. But somehow the devil has sown the lie, God helps those who help themselves. But that line is nowhere to be found in this book. The Bible teaches quite the opposite is true. God waits to assist. He patiently knocks, if you will. And he's waiting to assist those who see their need. He helps those who are willing to surrender and say, you take over. You give me the strength. Proverbs 3, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Here's another one, Psalms 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Psalm 28, verse 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. How about Joshua 1, verse 9? Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. But here's the why. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So the question this morning is, do you have an independent spirit or a dependent one? Thankfully, most people will never take an independent spirit to such hostile extremes. We're not dangerous people, yet the subtle influences of that sort of independent thinking counteracts our ability to depend on the Lord and also each other. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to pull myself up. We often like to think of ourselves as self-willed individuals. When is the last time you told the Lord, I need you, Lord, and I need your people? I mean, the world loves to promote the self-willed individual, the independent spirit, those that claim to be captain of their souls. But I believe God is more interested in a time-forged character in the person who is not strong in themselves, but rather humble and broken, maybe even bruised or crushed, and as a result are dependent fully and completely on Him. The world likes to spin that as weakness, But friends, let me tell you, according to this book, that is our only strength and hope. This morning, we're continuing our series on Paul. Really, at this point, he's still Saul, a man of grace and grit. And we learn that Saul was not immediately converted to Paul, but rather the Lord took considerable time in forming his character. It wasn't a flick of the switch, but more of a long, arduous journey. And in our quick read through Scripture, we're easily passing through those periods of time that are forming the character of God's leaders, and we get to the good stuff, to the meat, to the heart of the thing, 
But really, before we get there, we need to pay attention to this character formation that is going on time and time and time again, because that is where you and I live. Last time we found Saul in Arabia for three years in solitude, in communion with God, in developing his theology, in understanding his character. So we may be quick to think that now Saul is ready to go. So after Arabia, Saul returns to Damascus, according to Galatians chapter 1, and then he returned to Jerusalem. And so if you brought your Bibles, I hope you did, we're picking up our story here in Acts chapter 9. That's right where we left off last time, Acts chapter 9. I'll be reading from the New King James Version, and we pick up our story in verse 22. Acts chapter 9 and verse 22. Reading there, it says, So Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 23, Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. So Saul comes back to Damascus. Again, he is preaching, and the Jews there are fed up so much with Saul that they want him dead. What often goes around comes around. Here, the hunter becomes the hunted. Perhaps those he inspired with his own zeal are now turning on him. He is so effective that the Jews see Saul as a threat, and he has to go. But God comes to his rescue. And who does he use? What does the verse say? It simply says, the disciples. These aren't Jesus' disciples. These are just disciples of the truth, of the way. They are unnamed. They are unknown, unidentified individuals other than the fact that they are disciples of God. Now stop one right there for one moment. Can you imagine the Saul of Tarsus several years back, the raging bull depending on no one, out of all things fleeing by getting into a basket? No way. He was larger than life. He was in charge. He was going to depend on no one and no thing or anybody at any time, and never was he going to get into a basket and be lowered by somebody he doesn't know. But here we have a different man, allowing a nameless group of faithful disciples to rescue him down through an opening in the wall to entrust his life to others. Just imagine this man, this great man, Saul of Tarsus, now hunching over, crouching perhaps in a fish basket, dangling from a stone wall and slipping away in the night. I imagine this was a humbling moment for Saul, the great independent now utterly dependent. Even this great man, Saul, needed the church. Often we think, no, 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 it's the other way around. The church needed Saul, or who we know him as Paul. Without Paul, there'd be no church. Stop right there. Without the church, there would be no Paul. No, he needed the support of those around him. He needed to be rescued. The axiom is true. No man is an island. We all need each other. We all need some caring, some faithful friends that will come alongside us, that will encourage us, that will pray for us. Often like Saul, we enter into the church with a little pomp and pride and a spirit of independence, but then God shows up in a kind and patient way, and he helps us to see our desperate need of him and our need of each other. He didn't form individuals, single units. He formed the body of believers 
the church, not a building, but people. So verse 26, I have to turn my page. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, stop right there, this is Saul's hometown. Saul owned Jerusalem. This is where he went to graduate school. Saul knew this city backwards and forwards. Every alleyway, every narrow passage, every escape route, and old Jerusalem is full of them. And he knew them all. He, grew, he didn't grow up there, but he was in graduate school there. He, went, he knew that entire city. In fact, we were there for just a few days. And it doesn't take long to learn the old city. And so here Saul is going home, if you will. And not to mention, does he just know the topography and the area, but he virtually knows everyone of significance. So how's this going to go down? Get the microphones, turn up the lights. Pharisee turned evangelist now appearing at the central Jerusalem auditorium. Come in here. Is that how it goes? No, it's nothing like that. Saul couldn't even get a hearing from the disciples. Let's finish the verse. And when Saul had come up to Jerusalem, verse 26, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Here we have Saul rejected again. Maybe he killed some that were close to them, maybe even some of their own family members. No, this was a trick. This was a setup. Have you ever had a bad track record, so much so that nobody wanted to associate with you because of your baggage of the past? Yeah, Saul knew what that was like. But then verse 27, but Barnabas took him, Saul, and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Verse 28, so he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. Someone here now comes alongside Saul and said, hey, Saul, I'm on your team. I mean, out of nowhere comes this guy named Barnabas to encourage Saul to be his personal advocate. I mean, his name literally means the son of encouragement. I'm so thankful for the Barnabases that God seems to place in every church, aren't you? Those individuals who seek out the discouraged, the tired, the overwhelmed, those with baggage and shame, and they come alongside and encourage and befriend them. I'm so thankful for the Barnabases of this church who are doing that very thing every Sabbath. In fact, I believe God has a Barnabas in every church every college campus, every elementary school, high school, and every mission field standing ready to come to aid of someone needing encouragement. And in this day and age, who doesn't need some encouragement? I wish we had a hundred more people like Barnabas. You know, our encouragement here is full. You're going to have to find another church. We have too many Barnabases. Could that ever be the case? When's the last time you were overly encouraged? Well, we don't want to give anybody a big head. Well, that's true. And I suppose we could do that. But for the most part, people get beat up day after day after day. You know what they say human nature is? You discard the compliment as much as seven times before you hear it, but you get one negative and you hang on to that sometimes for weeks. Isn't that human nature? And so in our story, Saul is willing to accept his assistance. That's a healthy dependence, I would say. So off the two of them go, and it says... So he took them to the disciples, and eventually they accept him, verse 28. So he is with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. What made all the, the difference? Barnabas made all the difference. The simple question is, who can you make a difference for? What if there was no Barnabas in this story? What if there was no Barnabas in this church? What if there was no Barnabas in your place of employment? What would have happened to Saul? What would happen to you and me? 
in your experience, can you remember a Barnabas that came alongside of you and said, hey, I'm on your team. I want to be there for you. I want to encourage you. Let me introduce you to some of my friends. Barnabas made a huge difference, and he helped Saul overcome his past. Continuing now and now, verse 29, and he spoke boldly, this is Saul, in the name of the Lord, and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. This time, Saul is debating with his fellow Greek-speaking Jews. He's attempting to convince some of his old colleagues, if you will, and he has some assumptions. This is from Acts of the Apostles, 129. Paul was now in the city where many of his former associates lived, and to these Jewish leaders, he longed to make plain the prophecies concerning the Messiah. If I can just explain it, just hear me out. Paul felt sure that these teachers in Israel, with whom he had once been so well acquainted, were as sincere and honest as he had been. They mean well, and I'm going to help them to see. But he had miscalculated the spirit of his Jewish brethren. And in the hope of their speedy conversion, he was doomed to bitter disappointment. Those who stood at the head of the Jewish church refused to believe, but went about to slay him. Again, this great man, Saul, soon to be Paul, is rejected. The very same attitude they had towards Stephen. I bet it brought back memories of when he was on the other side and how it fell on deaf ears then too. And now the same attitude was being thrust at Saul. Spirit of Prophecy goes on to tell us he would have gladly laid down his life for the cause. He felt like that was the noble thing to do. If Stephen stood for the right, I will too, so help me until I'm gone. But God has different plans. And to piece this together, we have to jump to a retelling of this very story. It's found in Acts 22. I'll just put it on the screen for you, verse 17. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they won't receive your testimony concerning me. And so that's exactly what we have here. They're attempting to kill him and to run him out of town. Verse 30, when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Now, I said before that Jerusalem was his hometown. Really, Tarsus was his hometown. Jerusalem's where he went to graduate school and further studied and so on and so forth. But here's another humbling lesson for Saul and his need, not just for God, but for others to survive. And so again, a bunch of unknowns help him escape Jerusalem. We don't know their names. We don't know who they are. They're just church people, but they're church people Saul desperately needs. And he boards this ship bound for his hometown of all places, Tarsus. And if you see there, very tiny on the map, Jerusalem kind of in the middle, Tarsus up north from there. Can you imagine going back to where you grew up as a kid with that kind of track record like Saul had? Both sides wouldn't like you, I would imagine. Why God chose to send him to Tarsus, we don't know. But I imagine it was in part to continue to teach Saul lessons of humility and dependence. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to rock their world. I'm going to tell them what, what convinced me. They're going to change their minds. Everything's going to get turned upside down and the whole city will believe. Maybe, but maybe not. And he wasn't there in Tarsus for a few weeks or months even. It's thought that Saul was there for four to five years. I mean, wait a minute. This same chapter, Acts chapter 9, God told Ananias earlier, verse 15, go for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. I mean, what happened? Has there been a mistake? 
Because again, here is Saul and he's waiting. He probably went back to tent making as he waits for the Lord to show him what's next. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like to wait. I want it now. For me, a good day is when every light on the way that I'm going is green. This is a beautiful thing. Don't give me red. I hate red. Give me a green light every time. We like to see progress, don't we? And after all, don't the people need us? And don't they need us now? Look at verse 31 in Acts chapter 9. Verse 30, Saul just went off to Tarsus. Verse 31, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. You mean without Saul? Yeah, without Saul. In fact, the church not only went on, but it basically is saying the church flourished without his help. Ouch. Folks, the reality is this. The secret to the blessing and health of any church is almighty God, period. It's not you. It's certainly not me or anyone else we may think is indispensable to the cause. What did Jesus say? I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I hear people say, oh, we need to finish the work. And I understand what people mean when they say that. There is a work for us to do, but let's not forget, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, Romans 9, 28. So going back to Saul, wasn't it a waste of great talent for God to put Saul on hold? Not if he wanted to prepare him to write the letter to the Romans. Not if he would have a lasting impact on the backsliding believers at Corinth. Not if he wanted Saul to mentor Timothy for a lifetime of strategic ministry in Ephesus. Those projects and dozens of others called for a depth of character, forged through the lessons that taught him dependence, both on God and on others. The church didn't need Saul. In Tarsus, Saul had to learn that he needed them. It wasn't about independence. It was about discovering the value of dependence. Tragically, some have never learned that most valuable lesson. And you might be asking, well, what does dependence look like? Well, let's try and flesh it out real quick. Dependence means you, number one, value others. We need to realize that we need each other, folks. To weather a storm, for encouragement, we were made for community. And we can do more together than alienated into single atoms and parts. Just take the body, for instance. How far do you go with just as useful as the thumb is? You just put that thumb on the floor. Good luck, thumb. I mean, why did God raise up the church? Why did God raise up this church? Because he knew we needed each other for accountability, for learning, for encouragement, for support, for his plans, for his purposes. Jesus always sent out his disciples, how? Two by two. In a similar fashion, in the Marine Corps, they teach in combat situations, you dig a hole deep enough, or big enough, I should say, for two, better yet, three. Why? Because the battle can be hard and tiring and overwhelming, not to mention scary. Folks, we need each other, someone near us to keep us steady. As the special music said, holding our hand. There's certain doctor's office appointments. I don't need you to say anything. I don't need you to do anything. I just need you there holding my hand. 
The family is part of this community, no question. These Sabbath school classrooms and on down the hill, that is part of a, a small group community. That is part of it as well. This local church is part of that community, as well as God's global church that we're all a part of. We are better together. This idea of church is his idea. So don't let a stubborn spirit of independence rob you of the joy of sharing your life, your weaknesses, your ups, your downs, your failures, your dreams with others. If you're not part of a small group, get up earlier Sabbath morning and join a Sabbath school small group. I know there's a larger one that meets out here in the sanctuary, and that's great, but maybe it doesn't fulfill the small group that you're looking for of eight to 10 people that you can actually dialogue with. Maybe the Sabbath school classes you've experienced don't accomplish that for you either. Then form your own small group. Two, three, four individuals is all you really need to have a small group. When are we going to meet? Let's study God's word together. But let's also spend time talking about how's life going for you? What are the ups and downs? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? How can I just listen? Because when push comes to shove, I mean, Wayne was just up here a moment ago, listed off three people. Folks, that's a small group. That's each other. That's the church encouraging one another. If you're not part of any small group, start one. If you're not part of a Sabbath school class, join one. If you don't like any of them, maybe you could start a new class. All right, number two, we need to keep going. Humble yourself. Dependence means you humble yourself. I believe God is looking for broken vessels, wounded hearts, and humble servants, even those with bad track records, with scars, but humbly desire to serve in whatever capacity, whatever role, whatever the title that God sees fit. Don't promote yourself. Don't fight for your own title. Don't protest for your rights. Don't push yourself to the front. Don't drop hints. Let God put you where he wants to put you, when he wants to put you there, to do what he's called you to do. Humbly recognize that his timing is perfect. Humbly recognize that his work is not about us, but it's always about him. Start to finish. So humble yourself before God. Before the Ananias, God may sin. Humble yourself in Arabia. Humble yourself in the lowering over the walls in a basket. Humble yourself when you're rejected by your colleagues. Humble yourself when you are told to flee to Tarsus. Humble yourself when you're left waiting for another four to five years. Resist the urge to live life by your own understanding. You'll have what you need. Too often we're lured with the idea that I have to work harder so that my family is, what's the word we like to use? Oh yeah, comfortable. But you know what your family needs? More than extra money in the bank, more than an impressive address or all the latest gadgets. They need you to be right with the Lord. That means you walk humbly with your God. They need your gentle touch, acknowledging that he's the Lord of your home, not you. And that takes humility. But fathers, that's the best thing you can do. The Lord's in charge of this home. Thirdly, trust God. Rather than considering yourself indispensable, even secretly, remind yourself often, this is the Lord's work. 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 To be done the Lord's way. We should not follow impulse. We shouldn't rely on the judgment of men. We should not look to the revealed, we should look, excuse me, to the revealed will of God and walk according to his definite commandment, not matter of circumstances or whatever might surround us, whatever the pressures are. No, what is the thus saith the Lord? Even if it's just stay there in Tarsus and wait. 
With all due respect, William Ernest Henley was absolutely wrong. So was Timothy McVeigh. Our lives are not caught in the fell clutch of circumstance. Our heads are not to be bloodied but unbowed. You and I are neither the masters of our fate, nor are we the captain of our souls. We are to be holy, continually, and completely dependent on the mercy of God to do His work His way. Paul had to learn that. Question is, are you learning that? If not, today's a great time to start. Now is the time to humble yourself under His mighty hand. You know, in response to William Ernest Henley's poem, Invictus, meaning unconquered, Dorothy Day wrote this lesser-known poem, and it goes something like this, out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole. I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud under the rule which men call chance. My head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, that spite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Dear Heavenly Father, as we continue on in this journey with Saul, we see that this great man of faith also went through some, I would think, very discouraging times. Times when he probably questioned, times when he perhaps was confused, times when maybe he thought God was done using him. But as we know to be the case, that was not true. From the eagle's eye view, we see that you were molding his character, helping him to see the value of others around him, helping him to be humble and to be fully dependent on you. Lord, those are lessons we need to learn as well. Help us in our own character formation. Prepare us for what you have in store, for your honor, for your glory, for your purposes and your way at your time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.